just like we all showed up here tonight, we all need to show up in droves. You should be more concerned about holding these people accountable. We are the ones that they work for. We can make them do what needs to be done if we stick together. We're not always going to see eye to eye. But a situation that is this grave and this serious, it should compel you to get up every day to want to do something about it. Nobody should rob you of your power. Nobody. On October 3rd, Brick hosted an open, impassioned, honest, and at times difficult conversation on the current state of NYCHA, the city and the nation's largest housing authority. But rather than focus on the over-policing, crumbling infrastructure, violence, and environmental hazards that exist within NYCHA housing, Brick's town hall brought together activists, city council members, journalists, experts, and most importantly, NYCHA residents, to move the conversation from issues to action. I was a TA president for three and a half years when the info piece came to Washington houses. We took our TPA money and it did not happen. But we probably should have let them tear the management <coughs> office down because we are being screwed and last thing, yeah. the only way we're going to get justice is by shutting 250 Broadway down. It's going to take... The forum was hosted by Brick TV's managing editor, Brian Vines, who at times sounded more like a traffic cop than an MC. Hey, 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 hey. No, hello, no more. Excuse me. I'm sorry, No, we're going to have one meeting here, okay? We're going to have one meeting, and if you would like to have a voice, the loudest voices will not always win. The people who bring their experience forward are going to be heard and not shouted down in any way in this forum. Yes? Yes. We've done at least 10 town halls that I can name right now, and maybe more than that. I don't know that this was my finest moment in all of them, but the room was very passionate and people were really engaged in a way that we welcome. The thing is called be heard and we mean it, but... My granny used to say, we can all sing together, but we can't all talk together. So I think it's important that people don't get shouted down and that the loudest voices aren't the ones, the only ones that are heard. And I think we uh, set an intention as a community and really follow that for the rest of the night. That's our home. That's our pride. That's our morals. And I grew up there. I was born and raised. Through all of the talks and planning that takes months for these things, we really wanted to keep the voice of residents in the center. And on the theme of the loudest voices not being the only ones that are heard, we started the evening with a young person and we ended with a young man's voice that may have been lost in other places. But this young man was profound. Um, I want to talk about something for our children. I don't live in a NYCHA housing, but around my neighborhood, there is a lot of NYCHA houses. My school is right next to NYCHA house. And I know a lot of people, and lots of my friends live in those houses. My mom, before I was born, used to live in one and on Sutter. And I heard all these stories about what happened, how bad, and two Fridays ago, I heard about this kid that got shot playing basketball around one of these neighborhoods. And I feel like now I can go outside to have fun with my friends because now I have to um, ensure that I'm safe, that um, I know I'm at. And I feel like how can I ensure that children are protected in those type of areas? But it wasn't all bad news and bureaucracy. 
The immeasurable contributions made to the city by its half a million plus NYCHA residents were highlighted over and over again throughout the night. What's great about our community is that it is the working, laboring, fighting force of the city. You know, we basically are the community that this city is built on. The New York City Housing Authority that we live in today is way different. We all have jobs. We are lawyers, doctors, nurses, policemen, teachers, engineers. Um, I love the place that is so awful. We fight for our country. Honestly, out of all the town halls that I've moderated here at Brick, this was one of the most affecting and I took a lot of that home with me, which was weird. But I woke up thinking about this the next day, and that definitely doesn't always happen. This is going to end our broadcast. I invite all of you to stay with me and continue this dialogue. It was really our intention to center the voices of this community and create a living archive. You've helped us do that, and you've also shown us the work that is to be done. I thank you for coming here and sharing your voices and sharing your truth and being as raw with us as you've been and as passionate as you were. So we're gonna walk out of this room a little different than when we came in and people can't say they don't know. So thank you for being heard and thank you for coming here tonight. Like Brian, we couldn't help but take this conversation home with us. But along the way, we stopped in Coney Island Sea Park Apartments to get to know the buildings and the people that live in them. Then we got a history lesson on Brooklyn's Ebbets Field apartment complex and the legend it was built upon. And finally, a young man took us on a lyrical tour of the neighborhood he grew up in. Home is where the heart is in Brooklyn, USA. Welcome to Coney Island. I've been on the rise with him, my friend McKinley, and like we go a lot of places, but like we sometimes we go to the beach, we chill inside the park, play basketball. I live on over there. Uh, well, I originally grew up in Flatbush, and then a lot of moving around, and I end up here. I guess there's a lot of sounds because like they're usually doing construction, traffic and stuff. It's the waves, like yeah, the waves coming in. I've been working here for five and a half years. I get all the complaints, I interact with supers, with tenants, um, all different types of scenarios that goes on as each hour goes by, it's different. Every day is not the same. We've had incidents to where everybody helps one another, everybody, you know, looks out for one another. It, this is what I call my, my dome. Every, everybody works together here while I'm here. I don't know, I don't, I don't speak for everybody else. Everybody just works if it's just like a glove when I'm here. You know, you walk the path, you walk that straight path, it's peaceful. In other words, if, if you're on your lane and you don't mirror left nor right, it's, it's, it's peaceful for you. It's, it's an open doorway, an open pathway. 
for you to be who you want to be, think the way you want to be, eat what you want to be. There's no, there's no pressure in Coney Island. South Carolina my whole life, so all this is very new and shocking, but I love it. Oh, South Carolina is very quiet, so all you hear is crickets and uh, twigs snapping. So it's like, oh wow, it's so loud in Coney Island. I stopped the guy from being racist in the Puerto Rican bodega and I got free food for that. So the guy walked in and he was ordering um, a Philly cheesesteak and um, the, bo um, the bodega people have accents. So they was like, is it a Philly cheesesteak with no pickles? He's like, yes, with no in pickles, you can't talk. And I was like, whoa, I'm like, dude, that's uncalled for. If you need me to translate for you, I would be happy to, but that's that's not really cool. He's like, yo, F my F in business. And the people around me saw that I spoke up, so everybody got, you know, courage, like, yeah, yeah, get out of here. So, yeah, we kind of got the guy out of there, and he was like, oh, thank you. You, you know, if food is on me, the food is on me. I was like, oh, thank you. I didn't really, wasn't looking for a reward. I just thought I was really messed up. And now they call me brown jacket every time I go on there, you know. So, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, we'll take care of it. All right, okay. It'll cost you about six grand. Yeah, right. <laughs> What's wrong with your stove? Um, the low, it stays on medium. It's, you put it on low. Talk Eric about it? Yeah. What did he say? Swap it out? He said that he's going to talk to the management, but they have a... I'll take care of it for you. All right. Just tell them to remind me. As soon as I walk two feet, I'm going to forget. <laughs> See you later. Well, I mean, greed. I mean, you know, we have we have an entire service department here. It's professionally run. I manage six buildings, 816 units. So there's always something going wrong, right? So I, I, I gain satisfaction by helping people as best as I can, you know? Just that's what gets me through my day. It's like imagine having 800 wives, you know? And I go home to my daughter and my wife and then my mom. And I got another six girls in my office, so I'm surrounded. I fell in love with Coney Island. I didn't think 
coming all the way from the Bronx that I would I would last this long in Coney Island, but there's something about Coney Island that drags just grasps me and can't put my finger on it. I really can't. We got hit pretty hard here. We had anywhere from four to seven feet of water that stood. Hi, how are you? That stood until the tide went back out. It's you have a positive attitude in life in whatever you do and you'll get through that day, right? You do your eight hours, your 12 hours, me it's 14 hours, right? And you just gotta get through it, otherwise you'll pass out dead on the floor, freaking heart attack or other stuff, right? Yeah, yeah so, sure. the, excuse me. Mm -hmm. Take your call. Go for it. Yeah. I'm mm -hmm. off 31st Street, you wanna meet me here? Hey, come on baby. Anytime you ever walk past here again, you're going to oversee me by myself. And I can't get in trouble by myself. Unless I'm looking for trouble. You know what I mean? All right, my name is Bruce. All right, so let me put that on record too. But a lot of people call me Pop. Sunday I'll be 62 years old, so you know, but uh, I use them Sunday sign in, in Brownsville. My house caught on fire. Uh, and uh, Red Cross got me an apartment up here. I didn't really want to come out here, but I needed somewhere to stay. I've been out here 10 years. It's nice. Only time I don't like it when it's cold. You know, because when the, when the wind come up that water there in the wintertime, it's cold. But in the summertime, I like it. You know, you got the lady with the bikinis, you know, all that. You know, <laughs> I'm being realistic. I'm keeping it 100. You want me to keep it 100, right? I've been, I live in, I've been living in Brooklyn all my life. You understand? Sandy was the baddest, I hate the baddest B that I ever met in my life in 62 years I've been living. They had to uh, evacuate. See, I live on the fourth floor, so they didn't really damage me too much. But it was so much water. That's the worst experience I had in Coney Island was Sandy. I ain't gonna never forget that. In all the history we live, I ain't gonna never forget that. The most of the time I hear, most of the sound I hear here is boats. The reason why I say the boat, because they get, at nighttime they get real foggy. So you hear the boats all the time. They, if, if, later on tonight, maybe. Now if it rains tonight, I hope it don't. But if it do, you look out your window. You see how far you get and then you hear the sounds of the boat. For decades, Ebbets Field was home to the legendary Brooklyn Dodgers until the late 50s when the team left Brooklyn for California's sandy shores. As the former stadium was auctioned off piece by piece, plans were being drawn for a new group of buildings that would come to house Brooklyn's growing middle class. Producer Victoria Moran wanted to know what it was like to live in Brooklyn during this time of change, and here's what she found. Ask anyone who grew up in Brooklyn in the 1950s to describe their childhood, and they're almost guaranteed to talk about Ebbets Field. They remember hearing the cheers and seeing the lights from their bedroom windows blocks away. They remember the smells around the stadium of hot dogs and popcorn and horse manure. There were still horse-drawn carts in the neighborhood then. And of course, they remember the first time they saw the Brooklyn Dodgers play there and what those players, like Pee Wee Reese, 
Gil Hodges, and Jackie Robinson meant to the community. They'll also almost certainly remember those Dodgers winning the World Series in 1955. This is Steve Flicker, who's lived in Brooklyn most of his life. I remember uh, hearing on the radio, uh, it was car radio, because I'm pretty sure school was in session, if I remember correctly, and uh, it was a ground ball to Pee Wee Reese, it was two to nothing, and I'm thinking, don't boot it, don't make an error. And Reese has it, there's the throw to Hodges. Catch it, catch it. It's like something is still going to go wrong, you know? It was because we had gotten close so many years. For the Dodgers, it had always been wait until next year, but this was the year. Oh my God, it was. Horns were honking, delis were giving out free hot dogs. I mean, the one and only World Series and the same part. That was Lewis Wunderlich, another Brooklyn native. He not only remembers that World Series win, but also what happened just a couple years later. When they left at the end of the 57 season, they won a World Series in 1959 in L.A. It was like a, a hole in your heart. Some folks say that when the Dodgers left Brooklyn, they took the heart of the borough with them. And maybe it's because I grew up in California as a Los Angeles Dodgers fan and have lived in Brooklyn for many years now myself, but I had to know, what was it about the Dodgers that made them so special to kids growing up here? The old movies that were made in the 50s about World War II, there was almost like stereotypically one guy in the foxhole who was from Brooklyn. He would always go dem and d's and those, and he was like, you know, not the brightest guy in the world. And this was kind of the image of Brooklyn, and it was like the poor stepchild of Manhattan. And Brooklyn Dodgers gave us our only real, true, unique identity. At the heart of that identity were the players, who were insanely accessible to fans compared to players today. They lived in the Flatbush area. They rented homes uh, all in the same area, not far from the ballpark. We'd hang at the front entrance, and cabs used to pull up with the ball players, and they used to be mobbed. Uh, everyone handed them autographs. As a matter of fact, even uh, during the game, there was a chain-link fence and a, and a runway that connected the clubhouse to the dugout. And if you stood there, you'd stop them and pass them paper and pencil through the chain-link fence, and they would sign it for you. It was such a different aspect. The homey feel of the, of the you know, it's like a community at Ebbets Field. I just can't imagine anything like that in the corporate aspect of baseball nowadays. And Ebbets Field was tiny. You were close, close to the players. So, I mean, you could really see them. It was like a, I learned over time it was a special community. And even though she wasn't much of a baseball fan herself, Goldie Zwiebel remembers the Dodgers and Ebbets Field being central to her sense of community growing up too. It was a very much family neighborhood. I knew the name of the dog down the street. Of course, the, the grocer and the candy store guy and the butcher guy, we just knew everybody. It was a real hometown kind of feeling. The sound of the radios everywhere, in a car, in the street, on the stoop, the sound of being tuned into the baseball games. Wherever you went, in the store, that was the sound. You heard the announcer and you heard the crowd roar and you heard the... the 
you know, sounds of baseball being played. And whenever there was a game there, I could see the lights reflected off the apartment building behind me. That's how bright it was. And I could hear the crowds cheering from my bedroom. It was a fact of life at its field. And then when we were told that they were taking it down, it was like, you know, that can't be possible. In 1958, the Dodgers moved to Los Angeles. Two years after that, Ebbets Field was demolished. Then, in 1962, the Ebbets Field apartment complex opened in the footprint of the old stadium. Steve, Lewis, and Goldie all said the neighborhood changed dramatically during this time. It was a sort of a quietness about it. And then one day it closed, and we read that the Dodgers were now in California. And eventually they tore it down, and they built up these projects where people lived, and it was like... You know, the world had changed. And around that time, everything, the neighborhood changed. The stores changed. My friends were, you know, mostly all white. Not Mm. necessarily Jewish, but were white. And then suddenly the neighborhood literally changed. And my friends became mixed. Like many other families that had come of age in the Ebbetsfield Stadium era, Goldie's family eventually moved out of the neighborhood. Thanks largely to the allure of suburbanization, which was generally only available to white people at that time, the racial makeup of the community changed, right around the time the Ebbetsfield apartment complex was developed. I talked to Adam Steinberg, an urban geographer, about what was happening with housing in and around New York City during the mid-20th century. Some new technologies, as well as a lot of government subsidies, uh, there was an explosion in the development of detached single-family home, uh, and that was a huge area of development after World War II, uh, and it allowed millions of Americans, really, to move out of city centers into these new suburbs. Uh, at the same time, the housing they were often moving out of was being torn down and replaced with uh, what would eventually be called housing projects, these, you know, cities in the sky, where everybody gets a nice corner apartment and a building surrounded by uh, grassy lawns and playgrounds and so forth. Uh, and the idea is that, you know, this new housing project would complement the suburban housing. The problem, Adam says, is that housing projects were often poorly funded because most of the state and federal subsidies supported suburbanization. So there, there wasn't that much money, nearly enough, going into the housing projects. And a lot of that money that was going into the housing projects uh, wasn't going to what we would call affordable housing. Uh, it was going to middle-class housing. So what you have is this huge growing class of lower-income uh, city residents, often non-white, who were basically barred from moving to the suburbs. With few other options, non-white residents were moving into housing projects that frequently lacked resources, And despite the initial hopes and efforts of city planners, building community in and around these projects proved to be difficult. At the same time, crime rates were going up in the city, and housing projects, and the people who lived in them, were often blamed for that. There were a lot of concerns and complaints because often they found themselves isolated. Uh, Services were not always available. Uh, Shopping was not necessarily just downstairs and around the corner. It was hard to get to know your neighbors, uh, especially when you lived in a really large building and didn't know who lived next to you. People didn't hang out in the hallways the way they used to hang out on the stoop. Housing projects sometimes became associated with even more crime. Uh, and there is a fair amount of evidence that 
these projects work harder to police uh, than have been the older built environment. Uh, that these very long stairwells uh, and these big plazas and lobbies that weren't really being used that much uh, became places that were even more unsafe. But I don't think the housing project caused the crime rate to go up. The crime rate was already going up. So at best, the housing project was an attempt to fight that. At worst, it aggravated it. But it didn't cause it. Fast forward a few decades, and the Ebbetsfield apartment complex continues to face many of the same challenges it faced early on. Poor funding, negligent management, and organized crime. But there's more to the community's story than that. I wanted to learn more about the neighborhood today from someone who lives there now. So I met with Jean Rowe, the principal at nearby Ebbetsfield Middle School. About half the school students, who are about the same age as Steve, Lewis, and Goldie were when the Dodgers won the World Series, are residents of the Ebbetsfield Apartments. We started out by talking about Miss Rowe's personal connection to the neighborhood. I was born in Jamaica and I came here between 11 and 12. We came to the Bronx originally and then we moved to New Jersey. After college, I moved to New York, so I've lived here for 20 plus years. Originally, I lived in Queens and then I moved to Brooklyn, East Flatbush. As soon as she started working there, Miss Rowe knew the Ebbetsfield Middle School community was special. When I arrived, to my surprise and my excitement, the students were reflective of a variety of cultures. So we had students from the Middle East, from Africa. We have students from Central America, the Caribbean. We have African-American students that give students an opportunity to get to know other cultures. And it also um, is exciting for the adults here because you get to actually learn from your students some of the things that they value culturally and how so many of those things that the students value within their culture is also the same things that they value. Ebbetsfield provides a unique opportunity to just be engaged with other cultures. The importance of cultural engagement is not lost on Ms. Rowe and the rest of the school staff. They embrace the unique diversity of the campus in both the curriculum and in their community building efforts. We're a culturally responsive school, so in our curriculum we try to include a variety of cultures. So that's the first thing when we're planning our content. We think about the children in the room and how can we engage them in the content through cultural experiences. As a school community, we're trying this year to plan monthly events that engages all students and is reflective of all cultures. So that parents will come up and be able to mix, mingle, and learn about other members in the community and also provide our students with that experience as well. Ms. Rowe has lived here for a long time and she clearly has a very positive view of the Ebbetsfield community. I wondered how she would respond to someone who thinks that when the Dodgers left and the stadium was torn down, that the neighborhood changed for the worse. For me, thinking about this being Ebbets Field and what happened here with Jackie Robinson integrating baseball and how um, that brought about an enormous amount of change, it's one of the things that attracted me to um, take the position here at Ebbets Field and to build on that change. Our world is changing. This community 
is very diverse and is reflective of what's happening all over the world and we need to celebrate that change and to create a community where we are learning from each other, supporting each other and building on each other. The students here and the families here, they are a community that really believes in strong family values. And, and it's just amazing to see how the families interact, the students interact, and they really come together and they are working together as a community to support each other. I was also curious about what Ms. Rowe thought about recent changes in the neighborhood, which has been gentrifying in the past few years. I'm hoping that it will bring new opportunities for the neighborhood, um, exposure to different things, but will also, that change will build on the values and the community and the strength that was already in existence here. So I just see it as an addition to what has already been established here. When you think back to Jackie Robinson and what happened here, that created a certain value system, a certain community, a certain culture. We built on that. We went through changes, but through and through, this community continues to thrive, and it will continue to thrive with the change and we will have an opportunity to be exposed to different things and we will continue to work collaboratively and you know be even stronger I went into this story wanting to get a better sense of what Ebbetsfield which has been synonymous with this part of Brooklyn for over 100 years first as a baseball stadium than as a housing project, means to a neighborhood it's been a part of for so long. Now, I only talked to four people, an incredibly small sample for a place with such an enduring legacy. But one thing really stands out to me. All four of the people I talked to, who don't know each other, made essentially the same point. That Brooklyn is so much more than its worst reputation at any given time. It's so special because so many people from so many different places have had a chance to call it home, and in the process, they made it a community. You know, Frankie, I just remembered something. You know, I never did tell you that I've been to Brooklyn, did I? Yeah, I used to go there to Ebbets Field to see the Dodgers play. No kid. Sure. Oh, boy, the Dodgers. You know, that's where I learned my marksmanship. How do you mean? <laughs> Tossing pop bottles at the umpire. <laughs> Najee Omar is a Brooklyn-based poet, performer, and educator who uses the arts to build community. He has performed at the New Yorican Poets Cafe, the Brooklyn Academy of Music, on Russell Simmons' All Deaf Poetry, and at the Ingersoll Community Center's We Are Brooklyn block party. Reading his poem, Hands, Kings, and Brooklyn Streets, here's Najee. Brownstone, stoop, sit in summertime, block party skipping Brooklyn. Brooklyn, 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 streets. I come from St. James and Fulton. C-train Clinton Washington stop. Golden crust dipping, fantasy island sipping, where high school dropouts through truancy parties. Where corner stores ain't nothing but hood castles. Home to Arabian nights, boxing rings for middle school fights and street 
pharmacies. I come from New York City subway tunnels, underground museums where graffiti hangs like Picasso's and the homeless are still life. Statues with a pulse yellowing from piss-stained sea, we the people gawk as we tour these amusement parks of poverty on our screwed up train rides home. See, I come from head bopping, no music hand clapping, teeth smacking, feet stomping, double dutch hopping, gum popping, rock, paper, scissors says, shoot, kid fun. I come from African bloodlines, Layla Hathaway bass lines. I pledged solo fraternity lines. Shakespeare meets Baraka poetry lines. Maternity stretch mark, black don't crack. Don't you think about crossing that path mark? Supermarket lines that trace back to, to, to 1920s Harlem nights. Zoot suits, creased and pressed, top hats, boom, pat, bass, 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 gadunk, gadunk, pat, pity, pat, Ellis scats that swung and sway ladies' legs like brush strokes to the air when they dance. See, I come from the corpses of crowned heads. Dr. King, King Headley, King Oliver, King's County. Gun down men who wore their skin less light or their hoods too tight. Torpedo fists ready to rip the sky. Raised hands closed shut like cocoons growing wings in the center of their grips. They held hope waiting to fly. See, I come from the resistance of Angela's fro. From the will of Marley's locks. From the other end of the noose. A missed miscarriage, the seed that rose planted and prayed over and waited to bloom. See, I come from the thirsting eye of a grandmother, a dry well that longs to tear for the children she bathed and buried with a pair of hands refusing to wrinkle. See, those five-finger soldiers sometimes forgetting to pray before war were made for the piano so she could play a song for the heart to sing and again there will be life in the middle of her chest I come from magicians a magical man and woman who turned two bedroom apartments into royal mansions with a world class view of next door from a father whose love begins to gray over time and his wife the woman who carried the world on her left shoulder begging her knee for balance from her blistered hands clinging to life i come from the late night fights between a mother and cancer domestic disputes between sworn enemies sharing a bed a husband a family I come from the hour-long cries, the name-calling, the backstabbing, the heartache, the doctor's visits, the treatments, the therapy sessions we sat in, the couch that wasn't soft enough, the doctor's voice that wasn't sweet enough, the wigs, the wigs that weren't long enough. Cancer. 
the uninvited house guest dressed in mommy's clothes. She headed for the door with a card and last breath in hand. I come from a mother's goodbye as a parting gift. Brooklyn USA is produced by me, Sasha Mathias, and Emily Bogosian. Thanks to Brian Vines for giving us a behind-the-scenes look at October's Town Hall. The event was produced by Roe Johnson, and you can watch the entire thing online at youtube.com slash bricktv. Thanks to Kyral Palmer for walking Emily around Coney Island and riding the waves. Thanks to Victoria Marin for hitting it out of the park. And thanks to Najee Omar for taking us home. Earlier this year, he was named the first-ever artist-in-residence for the Intergenerational Community Arts Council, or ICAC, which brings NYCHA residents together to shape the artistic and cultural lives of their communities. This episode featured music from the DeWolf Music Library. If you like what you hear, think we got something wrong, or just want to get in touch, you can leave us a comment, tweet us at Brick Radio, or leave a message at 347-504-0801. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org radio. summertime, all you're getting fresh air off that thing, off the, off, off the water. It's water down that end, it's water down this end too. But in the winter time, like, in, like now, you don't, you don't even smell the trees no more. You know what I'm saying? Because they're dying. I mean, they're not dying, but you know, they died in winter time. So you don't really smell the trees no more. Only time you smell something like a tree, when they're cutting the grass.